Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Sports. My name is Bruce Berglund, and I'm your host. Each week, we choose a noteworthy new book on some corner of the world of sports, and we interview the author. This week, we'll be looking at the history of American college football in the mid-20th century. Our guest is Kurt Kemper. He is the author of College Football and American Culture in the Cold War Era, published by the University of Illinois Press. I have an old friend who lived for many years as an American expat in Europe. He was fluent in the local language, and he spent more than a decade overseas making a successful, happy life. And then he decided to move back to the States. I asked him, after he'd made this decision, what did he miss most about living in America? He answered that what he missed most of all was college football on Saturdays. For many people, such as my friend, college football is the quintessential American sport. For over a century, it has been one of the most popular sports in the United States. But according to Kurt's book, during the early Cold War, from the late 1940s to the early 60s, football came to be seen as the defining American sport. At a time of international tension and domestic anxiety, Americans regarded football as the athletic expression of national virtues toughness, teamwork, discipline, and hard work. This use of football to distinguish national strengths was not without debate, and this is what Kurt investigates in his book. How did college football fit within the culture of the early Cold War, when the United States was the most powerful nation in the world, but challenged by an apparently rising and antagonistic Soviet Union? In the book, Kurt uses as a case study the 1962 Rose Bowl, but he says very little about the game itself, or for any other game, for that matter. Instead, his book looks at how the Rose Bowl teams were chosen, and how four universities responded to the prospects of getting an invitation to the oldest and most prestigious bowl game. If you're a college football fan, you're likely thinking right now, well, wasn't the Rose Bowl always between the champion of the Big Ten and the champion of the conference on the West Coast? The answer is surprising. And as Kemper's book shows, the process was much messier and much more interesting than we'd expect. So let's turn to the interview. Kurt, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I'll start by asking about your, uh, your background and the story behind this book. In your preface, you, you write of growing up, going to college football games in, in Southern California. How did you go from being a fan of college football to being a historian of college football? Uh, well, growing up as a, a UCLA fan, uh, and this is in with some regards one of the things I deal with in the chapter, uh, the university makes prominent mention of its sort of racial background with Jackie Robinson and Kenny Washington and Woody Strode, uh, Arthur Ashe. You know, there, there are a lot of uh, sort of racial pioneers, quote unquote, that, that went to UCLA. So both of my parents are alums. And in our house, we sort of always thought of sports at UCLA as having more than, you know, a meeting of more than just the game. So I had always sort of thought about it as a, 
uh, a backdrop for larger social issues, although maybe not quite in, in such a scholarly context real early in my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so how did you come upon this particular episode of the lead up to the, the 1962 Rose Bowl? Uh, well, uh, completely by accident. I was doing a paper uh, in graduate school at George Mason University on, on uh, the West, and I ran across a, a very sort of popular history of UCLA football that mentioned in about one or two sentences that UCLA had threatened to boycott the Rose Bowl mm-hmm. that year. And, and I had never heard of this mm-hmm. before, which uh, was just, it just completely astounded me. And so I started looking into it, and, and the more and more I looked into it, just the bigger and bigger and bigger it got. Okay, yeah. So in finding that, so you were surprised, and I confess, I was... There was a lot in reading your book as a, as a college football fan that, that surprised me looking back just 50 years ago. And, and uh, there were things where I thought, wow, I thought it was always the case. For instance, that the, uh, um, the champion of the Big Ten always played the champion of the Pac-10 in, in the Rose Bowl. And reading your book, it was uh, really interesting and, and illuminating and how different the, the process was. And, and in the intro to the interview, I mentioned that college football fans will, will also be surprised in reading your book and listening to the interview so so clearly this was before the current bowl championship series system uh and it was also before the more traditional arrangement where the champion of the big 10 faced the champion of the pac 10 in in the rose bowl so could you explain how uh teams for the rose bowl were chosen at that time in the mid 20th century and before that well, actually, this was right in the middle of the contract between the Big Ten and the Pac-10. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, the the well, like all bowl games, the Rose Bowl was invented essentially by you know corporate and commercial interests. Um, in this instance, in Southern mm-hmm. California, to to draw spectators, um, and all the other bowl games uh, similarly developed. And so, the the primary concern was to draw people from. Uh, out of town, and uh, you know that we're going to essentially frequent the hotel and restaurant, and, you know, the hospitality industries. Mm-hmm. And so, what they did is they agreed to match, uh, a, um, you know, sort of a national uh, cha- uh, uh, team against the the local West Coast Conference, or what was then called the the PCC, the Pacific Coast Conference. And so, um, for well, the first Rose Bowl was very, very early. It was in 1901, um, and then then they didn't hold one again for several years. And then the the next uh, you know regular meeting of the Rose Bowl occurred in the in the middle decade, uh, in the middle part of the the 1910s. Um, and from there, for the for, for the next twenty odd years, um, they selected teams from all over. Uh, there were some Ivy League teams that played, um, a couple of Southern teams, most notably Alabama played. Um, and one of the things that the the Rose Bowl folks, and particularly the, the Pacific Coast Conference, was anxious about was what they considered to be a level playing field. And they increasingly looked at teams from the South who, much earlier than anywhere else, had begun to engage in outright uh, what was then called player subsidization, or what we would now think of as just scholarships. Um, and so and they didn't view these teams then as essentially playing by the same rules. And so the, the forerunners of the Pac-10 and the, the Big Ten uh, felt that they had a much closer affinity, not only in terms of athletic eligibility, but also in terms of academic standards. Um, and so they finally agreed to a contract right after World War II that would agree to pit the schools, the champions of the two schools, uh, against one another. Um, the Pad Big Ten faculty, though, were 
lukewarm about this at best. Uh, a couple of schools were always rigidly in favor of it. A couple of schools were always rigidly opposed to it. And so then you had about the you know the middle part of the conference that seemed to waver back and forth. And the contract came up for renewal every three to five years. And the votes were always very close, and you had a couple of schools that would switch back and forth. Um, and uh, the tipping point came in the late 1950s when there was a major scandal in the PCC that eventually destroyed the PCC. Um, and there was also some significant scandals um, in the Big Ten, most notably at Ohio State, was put on a lengthy probation. And so many faculty in the Big Ten decided, you know what, the Rose Bowl is just the, the symptom of the much larger disease. Um, so they let the contract lapse. Uh, it, didn't, it came up for renewal, and the Big Ten faculty did not vote to renew it. And so in the, in the early 60s then, there was this period where the, the contract between the, the West Coast schools and the Big Ten was not in effect, and as a result, it allowed the Rose Bowl to go back to what they could have done in the 20s and the 30s, which was invite you know any team from around the country. And the Rose Bowl, uh, with the leadership of Tom Hamilton, who was the executive director of the the sort of the rump West Coast schools after the PCC fell apart, they created a, a sort of a little mini conference. And Tom Hamilton was the executive director of that. And he made it clear that he was going to go after the best team in the United States. And he was looking all over the place, Georgia Tech, Navy, Alabama, LSU, you name it. Um, if they were had a winning, you know, an undefeated record, uh, they were under consideration that year. So you mentioned briefly the scandals in both the uh, – um out west as well as in the Big Ten, and so right now we're in the midst of many scandals in college football. Could you just say something about what what these scandals were? Um, in the fifties and the sixties, yeah, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, in some regards, they're the same kinds of things. You know, there's very little new under the under the sun in college football. Um, you know, it's it's. Uh, Recruiting, it's aid to athletes and, you know, what stands as proper or improper, which has varied over the years. Um, perhaps the most important thing to, to consider, and this is one of the things I discuss in the first chapter of the book, is that college football as we know it today in the, the early 21st century, we tend to see this as the inevitable rationalization of the game. Mm-hmm. In the 50s and right after World War II, we didn't know this was where college football was going to go. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was still a significant hope by many reformers and academics within the world of college sports um, to move away from the fully commercial model. Uh, this is where you, you see the last stand, if you will, by the Ivy League teams. Um, there was a, a pretty significant uh, reform effort on the part of uh, something called the American Council for Education. Uh, there was a lot of other uh, scandals in college sports separate from uh, the Big Ten and the Pac-10. There was a, a very famous point-shaving scandal in basketball uh, in the early 50s. There was a cheating scandal at West Point. And, and these kinds of things caused many people uh, to take a step back from, from college athletics and say, you know, maybe the, the model we're pursuing um, isn't the best model. And so there was a, a lot of effort to, to try to rein in um, the direction towards outright scholarships, uh, what had existed ever since the early 20th century, which is preferential admissions, uh, recruiting kids based on their athletic talent rather than their academic issues. So all of these things were still in play in the latter 50s and early 60s. Um, and, and probably if you had to pick one issue that separated the Big Ten and the Pac-10 from other uh, regions, particularly the southern schools, 
was the question of jobs programs. Uh, the Big Ten and the Pac-10 uh, condescended uh, about scholarships, and instead they said, we don't give scholarships to our players. Uh, they, they work for their education. Um, and, and to a certain extent, they were correct. Now, some of those jobs programs were legitimate. Some of them were complete shams. Uh, we have lots of evidence that some of these were little more than you know paper jobs where there was no actual work required, and they just got a check. Uh, but even in areas where there was actual jobs uh, performed, these conferences had a significant uh, significant advantage over the SEC because of where they were located. Yeah, yeah. Both the Big Ten and the Pac-10 schools are overwhelmingly in relatively large urban or state capital areas, whereas the southern schools were relatively isolated. And as a result, those economies weren't nearly large enough to provide for all of the usual college students who are already working, plus all these plum jobs to be handed out to college athletics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was a lot easier for SC and UCLA and Metro Los Angeles to find jobs at the movie studios, which they frequently did, or in Columbus, Ohio, in the state capital, than it was for, say, Mississippi State in Starkville, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that was the, the real rub, probably, um, in the 50s and the 60s was this question of, of the jobs programs and whether they were legitimate or not. And, you know, the Big Ten and the Pac-10 said the SEC was, you know, basically paying their players, and the SEC responded by saying, you know, it's an unfair advantage because of where they're located. This is the only way we compete. So both sides saw themselves as aggrieved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and talking about those uh, the jobs off campus, I, I was familiar with with that, uh, the jobs arrangement from a couple buddies in high school when they went off to play play college sports, and one got a job in the summer as a waiter at the alumni club, whereas another uh, explained that his job was to uh, go to the basketball games and make sure nobody stole the ball. That's how they described it. So, so I was thinking in terms of jobs on campus, but that makes sense that you can't uh, you can't find enough jobs on campus for a whole for a whole football team. So. Yeah, my favorite one, my, my uncle went to UCLA in the 50s, um, and he did not play college football, but he was a, a big-time high school athlete. Uh, and he, he had some friends that played football at USC, and one of his friends, um, their their job was to collect the dimes out of the, the payphone in the athletic office once a week. <laughs> he got full tuition for clearing out one payphone once a week. Uh, so to uh, to backtrack a little bit and talking about that, that – uh, uh, looking at the looking at the late forties, fifties, sixties, you don't necess- necessarily see the endpoint as college football today, where you have thousands of spectators, you have millions of dollars, you have to- college football on television pretty much every night of the week during the autumn. And and unlike today, something that did surprise me is that these universities were not necessarily clamoring for an invitation to to a bowl game and there was a great deal of debate on on campuses so can you t- talk about how the universities responded and made decisions in regard to bowl invitations well as part of the debate that went on in the post war years about commercialization in college football um, and the folks at Ohio State in particular made this argument when they considered the invitation in the fall of 1961. Bowl games then, as now, don't mean anything. There, there are no actual championships involved. They're fully commercial. They were started by commercial entities. Um, and so many state, I'm sorry, many schools disdained them. 
um, as little more than commercialized exhibitions that um, resolve nothing. And so many uh, schools, most famously Notre Dame, uh, refused to play in them. Uh, the problem came in the sense that even though many schools claimed that they were illegitimate, uh, the fact is they were played and they were covered by the media and under the you know the axiom that no no publicity is bad publicity, um, it continued to give schools uh, more prominence in the media and as a result it was used in recruiting um, and particularly for um, you know schools in cold weather climates, um, you know it was an awful. Um, an awfully impressive sort of thing to promise a recruit, a, you know, a trip to either Texas or New Orleans or California or Miami in the dead of winter. Uh, you know, when you're in Columbus, Ohio or Ann Arbor, Michigan in January, that sounds like a pretty promising offer. Um, and so, you know, they were simply too alluring to ignore. And, you know, schools began to, um, you know, backtrack on their prohibitions. Notre Dame will hold out the longest. They hold out, I believe, until the early 70s. Uh, maybe it's late 60s, but it's, it's not any later than that. Um, or earlier than that, I should say. Um, so, you know, the, the bowl games were, um, and, you know, they weren't even used to, to um, calculate the wire service national championships until the, the 60s. They used to release the national championship poll in, uh, before the bowl games were even played. So there wasn't the big the big payday of millions of dollars for universities that we associate now with bowl games. There was money involved, to be sure, and in fact, I argue that that was one of the significant factors that pushed UCLA to eventually accept the Rose Bowl invitation, even in the face of a, of a, a possible student boycott. But it wasn't anywhere near the sums of money involved now, mm-hmm. uh, in large measure because their television was still pretty limited. Uh, most of the money came from gate receipts back then, and then, and to a lesser extent, the radio contracts. And so, when the university did get uh, did get an offer, so it, it wasn't simply a matter within the within the athletic department. It was something that that the faculty would decide. At least in in the, in the case of Ohio State, which we'll talk about in a bit, that uh, the professors were deciding whether or not to go to a bowl game. Well, it wasn't in Ohio State and the Big Ten because they have uh, something that's relatively unique, uh, particularly this back then, uh, something called faculty control. The very uh, premise of the Big Ten Conference insists that faculty have authority over the athletic department. Uh, now, what that meant has varied over the years, and one of the things that makes the Ohio State chapter um, a little interesting in my mind is the evolution of the notion of faculty control at Ohio State. Uh, early in the post-war years, uh, faculty control was essentially pro forma. There was some presidential appointees uh, who basically rubber-stamped whatever the athletic department wanted, um, and in fact, as a result, Ohio State generally supported the old Rose Bowl contract. Uh, but as a result of the scandals that put Ohio State on probation, uh, the faculty changed the, the method of governance and created a, an athletic council that had to be elected by uh, the general faculty. And that if uh, they so chose, uh, they could bring athletic matters before the full faculty council as well. 
Um, and so that was what happened in the case uh, in 1961, uh, where it went to the uh, the full faculty council, and they overturned the athletic council's decision to accept the Rose Bowl. Uh, it wasn't that way on other campuses. Uh, the SEC did not have uh, anything, in the, at least in the same vein that the Big Ten did, a faculty control. Um, the the PCC or the the AAWU as it was called back then that was that little mini uh, that sort of five five school mini conference in in between the, AA, the uh, I'm sorry the PCC and the Pac eight before the Arizona schools joined um, they had something resembling faculty control uh, but not as as rigid as what the Big Ten had so it it did vary from place to place okay okay. Uh, so before looking at the at the four universities you discuss in the book, you talk about uh, four schools in particular that were in the running for the 1962 Rose Bowl, Ohio State, Louisiana State, Alabama, and, and UCLA. But before we talk about what happened at those schools, I want to step back and, and ask you about your broader argument about football and the culture of the, the Cold War period. And, and first, I want to ask you about this notion of Cold War, Cold War culture. And, and I admit that when I think of Cold War culture, what comes to mind are, are Tom Clancy novels and, and the movie Red Dawn. But, but you work with a, a broader conception of, of Cold War culture. Could you explain what, what that is? Well, my, perce- or my perception of, of Cold War culture is an internal one. Uh, you mentioned, for example, the, the Clancy novels and the film Red Dawn from the 80s. Um, those look outward and see, you know, a, a Soviet enemy. In other words, the threat is from without. Uh, from the cultural perspective, um, I'm seeing uh, the, the Cold War as an internal preoccupation, um, and I'm not unique in that. Uh, the old Mickey Spillane novels, for example, uh, films from the 50s like I Married a Communist, all of those uh, essentially are anxious about uh, an American identity in an ability to withstand, you know, the Soviet onslaught, whether it came from a military perspective or a much more subtle perspective. Um, so I'm really interested in how Americans look at themselves during the 50s. Um, and, and football, that is really just the, the, the prism, if you will, to look through and to look at the, the Cold War. In my mind, the book is really more about the Cold War than it is about college football. College football is just the vehicle to get me there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so this is a period where uh, uh, I guess you would describe it as, as something of a project of nation building or, or uh, building national identity from the late 40s to early 60s. Would that be an accurate way of describing it? I think that's very fair. In particular, one of the things I'm concerned with, and um, you know, for, for those of us who came of age in the latter Cold War, you know, we, we, we tend to see the Cold War obviously as, as um, sort of fatalistic in the sense that we know how it's going to end up. Yeah. Um, Americans didn't know how that was going to go in the in the late 40s and the early 50s. Um, you know, things, the sequence of events, for example, were were very disconcerting to the Americans at that point. Beginning with the fall of China in 1949, uh, the Soviets' ability to acquire the uh, the atomic bomb uh, by the latter 50s. Of course, they not only put Sputnik into space, but then in the early 60s they put a man in space uh, ahead of the United States. Uh, Soviet GNP was growing faster than American GNP. So there were lots of things that caused Americans to say, you know what, I don't know if we're going to end up on the right side of this thing. Um, And then, you know, that was bad enough, but then Americans also had to consider 
where the Cold War was taking them. We saw a dramatic increase in the size of government. We saw, for the first time in the history of the Republic, a standing military establishment. Um, all of these things caused many Americans to say, you know, I'm not sure I'm, I'm happy with where the Cold War is taking us, and we're not even sure we're going to win this thing. Um, so there was a tremendous amount of anxiety in American society. Most Americans, to be sure, uh, were willing to accept, the, the at least on the surface, the notion of a communist threat and embrace the Cold War. But there was underneath that a tremendous level of anxiety about how uh, you know, the United States would combat the Soviets and what the consequences would be. And so then, how did, you hinted earlier, but how did football then fit into this, this Cold War culture and this period of anxiety? Football becomes um, merely a, a, a talisman almost, a, a touchstone uh, for Americans to reassure themselves. Um, one of the things is football, uh, Americans imbued football during the period with all kinds of broadly benevolent, you know, unoffensive um, sort of national characteristics. It was tough. It was manly. It required self-deprivation. Uh, it was a game nobody else in the world played, so it could be very distinctively American. Um, these were things that many Americans looked to and found a level of validation. In, in other words, the, one of the things I'm trying to say with the book is that the Cold War didn't so much change football, is that Americans looked at football slightly differently and now it became a mirror to reflect what they wanted to see, what they needed to see to convince them that we were going to be victorious in the Cold War, that we were you know, up to snuff in terms of confronting the Soviets. Um, and so in that regard, football merely becomes what we want it to be. Football doesn't change so much during this period. What changes is what we want out of the game. Okay. So one of the trends you talk about in this period, and, and I don't know, would it be appropriate to call it the, the militarization of football or the association of, of football with military virtue? So, so something you describe on the one hand, there's this uh, connection of football with a warrior ethic and even with preparedness for, for a conflict with the Soviet Union. And at the same time, many of the key figures in college football in the late 1940s and 50s are coming out of coming out of the military. So could could you talk about that or is that overstretching to call to say something about a militarization of football during this period? I think in terms of broad cultural acceptance, that's not inaccurate. I mean, football has been linked with, with military, you know, language and rhetoric, uh, at least since the 19th century. I mean, you know, the elite founders in the Northeast uh, always viewed the game, you know, ever since the onset of industrialization as a sort of crucible for, um, you know, national character and toughness, and they put it within the rhetoric of, of the military. Um, but the World War II does much to expand that, if for no other reason reason that merely because the number of Americans with uh, service experience just simply explodes. Um, but, you know, World War II gives football a much broader popular understanding of the game in military contexts. Um, and as I said, some of that may be just as simple as something like eight or nine million Americans went into the service during the period. Um, and so as a result, that's just rhetoric they're comfortable with because it speaks to shared experiences. Yeah. Oh, sorry, were you going to add something? Well, I, and I was just going to say, uh, but then after the war, uh, there is a much more dramatic use of football um, by elites, by uh, military leaders, by elected officials, congressmen, presidents, um, 
to specifically couch the game in a military context. And, and here's where the game takes on its explicit Cold War language. Um, and that playing football then becomes really a, a form of preparedness, to use your word a minute ago, um, for confronting you know, the, the Soviet aggressor. Um, and so there it takes on a, a, a much broader uh, sort of cultural cachet after the war. So, so one other issue of the early Cold War that you discuss, and that's that's important in particular with Ohio State's candidacy for the Rose Bowl, are the the changes in American higher education at the time. So, how did the Cold War affect universities in the U.S., and then how did that relate to to football? Well, uh, probably unintentionally, or at least uh, without a lot of foresight, uh, the Cold War ended up being a huge benefit to higher education, uh, particularly as we began to see uh, the, the broadest possible context of the Cold War, which was really a, a contestation between two competing ways of life. Um, the, the thing with the Cold War, obviously, it was a cold war, not a hot war. In other words, this was not going to be fought, or at least not exclusively, uh, by guns and mere brawn. We were going to have to uh, create a, a society um, that not only could withstand the Soviet influence, but also try to win friends, if you will. One of the things I tell my students is that it's not entirely inaccurate to think of the Cold War with regards to the Third World as a big global game of Red Rover, Red Rover. And so we were trying to win over these other other um, uh, countries to uh, a free market um, sort of representative style of, of um, political economy. And one of the ways we had to do that was to build a sophisticated, attractive society. And so it was not merely the development of weapon systems, uh, but the harnessing of technology for the benefit of the larger society. And much of that was going to be done um, in the halls of academia. And so the federal government begins to funnel a lot of money. In fact, 10% of the entire federal uh, research budget starts going into higher education by the 50s. And so there's a lot of money involved in college football, and many universities, conversely, begin to see their role in very patriotic, very uh, primary uh, obligations, and that this was not merely some sort of sideshow, uh, but that the work being done in academia was crucial uh, to the Cold War efforts. And at Ohio State, they began to wonder if whether football was essentially barnacling uh, those those efforts, uh, the preoccupation uh, with what was going on in the football stadium rather than what was going on in the laboratory, the willingness to direct resources away from academic pursuits towards athletic pursuits. Uh, and, and for many, the tipping point came when a, a Massachusetts senator named Leverett Saltonstall visited uh, Ohio State, and his comment was, the only thing I ever knew about you guys was that you had a good football program. <laughs> and that just cut to the quick of faculty doing you know, pretty sophisticated research. Um, now, it's an apocryphal um, you know, reference how many faculty really uh, you know, heard that at the time is unknown, but it was something that was mentioned for years afterward. Um, and for many faculty, it was representative of how football was coming to dominate public consciousness um, and, as a result, cloud what faculty perceived to be was far more significant. So at Ohio State, the main tension was then over, over football against the university's academic reputation, uh, research going on at the university, and, and it switched to LSU and Alabama, where there was a different concern, and that was football and segregation. So why was a, 
segregation an issue with with these schools as they considered a possible Rose Bowl bid? Well, those two schools, as well as the, all the state schools of the South, were continuing to try to hold at bay, uh, you know, integration, which after 1954 became the law of the land with the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Uh, all the major state schools uh, in the Deep South were still integrated. I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me, still segregated. Um, and also, uh, their um, sports teams generally refused to play it. Gradients, um, and so all those things caused um, the the athletic programs to essentially consider how they were going to continue to operate in a national intercollegiate athletic environment. Um, because by the post-war years, uh, a dramatic increase in black enrollment occurred, uh, in some regards aided by the GI Bill, but also just because of the movement of the black population during World War II. Uh, they moved to defense industry jobs, and as a result, they were moving outside of the, of the South into areas where segregation was certainly not as um, legitimate and certainly not as legislated, although it still existed in some areas. Um, and so they were going to have to face the consequence of uh, insisting on, on segregation while playing against integrated teams. And um, this became an issue uh, that accelerated actually after 1954 because of the Brown decision. Uh, what you see in the Deep South uh, is the emergence of what's called massive resistance, which is the attempt to challenge uh, integration on every front um, and in every instance, uh, including the athletic field. And so, for example, at LSU, they actually passed a resolution uh, essentially attempting to um, um, uh, oppose integrated athletics. And then in 1956, the state legislature actually made it a law and made it illegal for integrated athletics to occur in the state of Louisiana. But then LSU went to, they didn't go to the Rose Bowl, but they did go to, uh, it was in the Orange Bowl, right? That year? They did. Uh, the, the, the Louisiana law was overturned um, in the federal court system. And uh, the state legislature made it clear, though, that they expected the, the schools, most notably LSU, because they were the one that played the biggest athletic schedule, uh, to still abide by it. Um, and in, in 1961, you have a, a fairly... Uh, significant series of meetings, which really only exist in the historical shadows. Um, I I know they existed because they were referenced in newspaper coverages. What was actually discussed is, is unknown. Uh, I tracked down uh, the son, for example, of the president of the Louisiana Sovereignty Commission, and those records mysteriously uh, have disappeared from the Louisiana archives. So I tracked down his son to ask if he knew anything about it, and his son just sort of chuckled, and he says, yeah, I don't expect you'll ever find those. He says, if I find anything, I'll, I'll get back to you, and I, I never heard from him. So, um, you know, that exactly the nature of those discussions, you know, we'll, we may never find out. But it came out that LSU suddenly accepted an invitation to play an integrated Colorado in the Orange Bowl. Um, so my suspicion is, and, and this was some of the discussion that was played out of the media, uh, the university made it clear to you know both the, the uh, politicians and members of the legislature that uh, if they were going to insist on, on an all-white uh, athletic policy, that this was going to mean the permanent relegation of, it, of LSU athletics to... Uh, second-class status. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and essentially when faced with the choice, uh, as the title of my chapter for that is, it was a fate worse than integration. Um, and they caved on the matter. Hmm. And so then how was it handled at Alabama? Because it was handled somewhat differently, correct? It was, because Alabama had uh, perhaps arguably um, higher expectations, I guess. Uh, Alabama had been willing to play integrated games so long as they were on the road. Uh, Alabama had played integrated schedules um, every now and then. Not very often, but often enough that it wasn't something that was entirely unheard of. Um, and Alabama is really the, the poster child uh, of Southern football, largely because in the 20s and the 30s, they famously managed to wrangle several invitations uh, to the Rose Bowl. Um, and uh, almost always were heavy underdogs and managed to win uh, more than half of them. Uh, most famously, they upset Washington in, oh, the date escapes me right now, but it was well before World War II. Um, and that was sort of the making of Southern college football. And for many Southerners then, if they weren't rooting for their own team, they were rooting for Alabama because Alabama's ability to go west and beat these northern and western teams demonstrated the superiority of Southern football, which for many was still condescended against. Um, and so there was a, a pretty significant cachet to Alabama, which they were not willing to entirely forsake on the altar of segregation. Uh, the caveat was that it always had to occur on the road. They refused, obviously, to play uh, integrated teams in Alabama. Uh, so the question became not whether they were willing to play black school or schools with black players, but whether they were willing to put up with the cost, which by the early 60s increasingly meant a dramatic amount of public condemnation. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alabama largely decided that in 1961 they were not going to put up with what they expected to be a significant amount of opposition on the West Coast. Now, I um, have put in the book, uh, Alabama was definitively offered uh, an invitation, and they turned it down. Uh, And they turned it down because they knew there was going to be opposition. There was going to be opposition from the students at UCLA who had already threatened to boycott the Rose Bowl, and that involved players, most notably Kermit Alexander. Uh, There was going to be opposition from students Students, uh, many blacks who lived in Southern California had recently migrated there uh, from the Deep South who'd come west looking for defense industry jobs during the war. So they had very, very vivid memories of Southern segregation. Um, and then there were some what I consider to be almost sort of sideshow issues um, because of the the role that uh, the the Rose Bowl plays in sort of a larger spectacle in Southern California uh, that also included the the involvement, at least tangentially, of of Caltech. Uh, Caltech always hosts a a reception uh, for the Rose Parade, and uh, the University of Alabama had an extension program in Huntsville that was linked to the space program, of which Caltech was a a significant academic partner in. So what we're looking at, then, is the the possibility of some kind of a reception or multiple Multiple events with Alabama, you know, officials in attendance, and Caltech has a famously contrarian student body that looks for any opportunity uh, to deflate overstuffed shirts and, and generally pull pranks. And in fact, in 1961, they pulled one of the biggest pranks of all time by actually reworking the halftime cards done at the Rose Bowl. Um, so the likelihood that this was going to be stuff in the media, this was going to be, you know, traditional kind of opposition in the form of pickets, uh, as well as who who knows what the Caltech students might have done at some reception, all of this caused the university to decide that this wasn't worth the issue, and they actually turned down a Rose Bowl invitation. 
So you mentioned the the potential of a of a uh, protest by students at UCLA or, or students in Southern California. So let's let's switch gears to UCLA, which is the last university you discuss in the book. And um, so say something about this potential student protest or even boycott, and how did that how that originate, and how how serious of a threat was that at UCLA? Well, like the discussions about uh, LSU playing integrated games, some of it remains in the shadows. Um, but the first, uh, you know, public reference to it is a, a notice in the UCLA student paper, followed a couple days later by a notice in the USC student paper uh, that a, a group called the Negro College Students of Southern California was going to call on both USC and UCLA, who were the two leading candidates to be the West Coast representative of the Rose Bowl at that time, um, to boycott any game. Uh, against a segregated opponent. And at the time, this considered not only Alabama, but it was still possibly involving LSU, maybe even Georgia Tech. Um, And from there, it got picked up by the major daily commercial papers in Los Angeles. Uh, Both the LA Times and the LA Herald ran pieces with it, which those pieces were then picked up by the New York Times and the wire services. Um, So it relatively quickly snowballed into at least a fair amount of prominence. How many bodies it actually involved, we'll never know. Um, But it did involve some members of the football team. Um, The the, um, public, uh, the popular history of UCLA that I referenced at the top of the interview that had mentioned this, uh, the author of this uh, stumbled across this in doing oral interviews, and Kermit Alexander, who was the the, uh, leading uh, halfback of the team, uh, said that he was not going to play if they uh, played a segregated team, and he claimed that he had other football players with him. Uh, There were at least five other uh, black starters on the team that year, Um, so you know, if even half of those really followed through with it, uh, that would have been a significant, um, uh, you know, consequence for UCLA to have to address. But and then, and, but they never had, uh, they never had reason to address it since. Uh, no, because they the the pressure that was created by the threat of the boycott and and Caltech and and all of the other you know references in the larger media, um, that's what caused Alabama to decide not to. Uh, uh, accept the invitation. LSU had already decided to go to the Orange Bowl anyway at that point, um, and so with no other major Southern school, um, the Rose Bowl committee then actually gets sort of left in the lurch. They start looking for who else because uh, first they extend the invitation to Alabama. Alabama turns it down. Then they extend the invitation to Ohio State. Ohio State's faculty turns it down. LSU's already gone looking elsewhere. Suddenly, the 1962 Rose Bowl is the game nobody wants to go to. Um, Tom Hamilton, who was a graduate of the Naval Academy, uh, for a time actually tries to, to consider inviting Navy. Um, but they weren't going to play Army that year until about the second week of December, and Navy made it clear that they don't discuss anything before the Army game. So the Rose Bowl was going to have to wait likely three weeks before the game to figure out who they were going to play if they were going to invite Navy. So they finally broke with tradition and agreed to invite Minnesota, um, which had been there the year before. Uh, The earlier Rose Bowl contracts with the Big Ten had said that there was going to be no repeat um, attendances by Big Ten schools. And so everybody just assumed that Minnesota really wasn't an option that year. Um, And also Minnesota had previously voted against the Rose Bowl contract. 
Um, but they eventually end up inviting Minnesota. Uh, they can do so because one, the contract isn't in, you know, isn't enforced. So the, the no repeat clause isn't binding and Minnesota's faculty sort of, um, I don't know if I want to say they weasel out of it, but they come up with the interesting logic that their opposition to the contract, which they had voted no on, came from the language that said that the Pac-10 must provide the conference champion to play in the Rose Bowl. In other words, the way the Minnesota faculty interpreted it was that it was a contract that was determining whether Minnesota's football team played in the Rose Bowl, not faculty control. And so Minnesota argued that in this instance, it wasn't a contract that was going to send them to the Rose Bowl. It was going to be a faculty vote. And in that way, they saw absolutely nothing wrong with sending Minnesota to the Rose Bowl. Uh, I can assure you that the faculty at Ohio State who opposed the Rose Bowl were appalled at Minnesota's decision. Uh, I was able to interview one of the the leading Ohio State faculty members at the time, uh, you know, years later for the book, uh, and he jokingly declared that Minnesota's faculty betrayed us, was his phrase. Uh, so they were, they were very disappointed that Minnesota's faculty had agreed, but in that regard, uh, Minnesota ended up going, uh, and they ended up pummeling UCLA in that game. Yeah, and so the whole thing is, if, if you're a college football fan today, it's just unfathomable that you couldn't find teams to play in the Rose Bowl. Yeah, it was. Uh, as I came across this, I'm, I'm looking at dates in newspapers, and I'm realizing, you know, it's Thanksgiving weekend, and they still don't have somebody who's willing to play in the Rose Bowl. <laughs> that was, you know, just as a college football fan, that was one of the things I was just sort of chuckling to myself as I'm reading the newspapers from the period, and you know, watching the data unfold. Is it's just amazing that they can't find somebody to accept an invitation. I, I've got to believe this is the only time in history that two teams said no to the Rose Bowl. And so you talk, uh, you know, the interesting thing with your book, it's it's got college football in the title, but as you said earlier, it's more about the Cold War than and, and the culture of the time than about college football. And uh, so you talk very little about uh, about the game, and you make the point of how actually it was universally agreed that the game was pretty boring. Yeah, UCLA, I think, uh, recovered a fumble on the opening kickoff and got a field goal and then didn't even get across the 40-yard line the whole rest of the game. Uh, and, and Minnesota just, just had him on the, on the run the whole day. Uh, like I said, it was, uh, by all accounts, a, a very uninteresting game. Um, the, the, the first sentence of the introduction mentions the outcome of the game, and then I don't mention the actual 1962 Rose Bowl again in the entire book. Yeah. So I have a question about your your argument, and uh, uh, I guess it's something of a challenge, or, or maybe to, to get you to uh, uh, clarify something. So you argue that college football was an important institution in the building of, of national identity in the fifties and sixties, but but in reading your book and in listening to the comments comments you've made, and in my own view of college football, I find the sport to be one of primarily regional loyalties and. And I could speak from my own experience of growing up in the Big Ten region and then moving to a state in the Big 12. And I lived there for nine years, and and I would complain up and down that there was never any news in the local sports page about the Big Ten. And a friend of mine who had grown up in, in Kansas would say to me, well, what do you expect? You're living in Big 12 country. There's probably nothing about the Big 12 in newspapers in Minnesota or Ohio or Michigan. And now that I live back in the Big 10 region, I can say that, that he's right. So while recognizing the cultural importance and popularity of football and college football nationwide, I'm wondering if in our team and conference loyalties, 
college football still preserves uh, primarily regional identities? Uh, I would actually have to agree with you. In fact, I had a similar experience growing up as a Pac-10 guy. Then I went to graduate school at LSU, uh, and I used to complain all the time that I could never get Pac-10 scores in the Baton Rouge paper. Um, but even then, um, there was a tremendous amount of regionalism to the game. It's it's always maintained some of that uh, for, for a bunch of reasons. But um, relative to my larger argument, this is actually one of the things that allowed football to so successfully emerge as a, a, a an institution with with Cold War meaning and Cold War values because it was so malleable. It could be something to a Southerner, um, and it could have meaning to a Southerner, even though it necessarily involved issues of segregation, which was very clearly not an American value at the time because of our attempts, uh, not only with the Civil Rights Movement, but an attempt to oppose that sort of thing um, as part of confronting the Soviets. And, for example, Californians could look to a sort of a, an overinflated sense of egalitarianism, or at least not an entirely accurate sense of egalitarianism, and they could look at, at their integrated athletic tradition and say that that was representative themselves. And so in that regard, football, because of its regional connotations, allowed it to be so malleable so that people could look at it and it would have different meanings, but they could all look at it as still maintaining those sort of bedrock Cold War cultural values of manliness and you know self-deprivation and sacrifice uh, and teamwork and all of those other things that, that Americans looked to. Uh, you know, when they wanted their cultural institutions to say something beneficial about themselves. So can I ask, would you dare reveal, did you, did you become an LSU fan? I did actually. I I uh, I, de- I drank the Kool Aid. Uh, I've been out. I've been out of Baton Rouge now uh, eight years, so it has uh, you know dwindled slightly. Uh, I don't root for LSU against UCLA, but but otherwise I will generally root for LSU. Uh, Saturdays in, in Death Valley were a fabulous uh, fabulous times back when I was a graduate student, which really wasn't that long ago. You could still get student tickets for only three dollars a game, uh, which on graduate students budgets was an absolutely fabulous way to spend a Saturday evening. Um, so, yeah, I, I did become an LSU fan, and I have to say, even though I'm still a Pac-10 guy, uh, there's nothing like football in the SEC. If you're a, a college football fan, you should go to one SEC game at least once in your life, because it's an experience. Okay. All right. I, I, I sip the Kool-Aid, but I never... I, I resist it. I, I, uh, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't get into to, uh, Big 12 sports at all, so... Um, so we're almost out of time. I have a la- couple of last questions that, that get away from your book specifically. And, and the first uh, relates to the coaches that you talk about uh, in your book, uh, Woody Hayes at Ohio State, Bear Bryant at Alabama. So this is when they were beginning their, their careers. And these men are now mythologized. And they were, they were even mythologized in their lifetimes as the embodiment of the college football coach. But today, if if they use the same methods, I think you talk about Bear Bryant would wouldn't even let his players drink water during practice. They would meet the same fate as uh, as Kansas coach Mark Mangino or, or Texas Tech's uh, Mike Leach, who were fired for alleged abuse of players. And and so thinking about your argument about football as representative of American virtues. How might you interpret the changes in coaching practices in football and the expectations for coaches as far as it reflects football's connections with the broader culture? 
Well, I guess perhaps the the most obvious connection um, is that without the exterior threat of the Cold War, we don't feel the need to tolerate those kinds of things. Um, you know, Brian's deprivation of water was not unique. That was a pretty standard practice, actually, well through the, the 50s and into the 60s. Um, and this, the idea was, this is how you made boys into men. This is how you created toughness. And, you know, there were going to be some kids who were going to wash out and who weren't going to make it, and that was too bad for them, but that was essentially the the consequence for the, you know, the larger issue. It was kind of like the, the argument over, um, you know, inoculations. Uh, you know, we're going to lose a couple of kids in the process, but the tough in the whole, uh, this is the price we have to pay. Um, and, you know, when they were looking, particularly in the early 50s, uh, one of the things that I mentioned in the book is the, the preoccupation with the treatment of POWs in the war in Korea and the alarming number of uh, American GIs that allegedly uh, broke down under interrogation, uh, the concern over physical fitness um, results and, and uh, from the Army's uh, draft uh, statistics, uh, there was a concern that we were growing soft. And so these kinds of, of uh, practices in the athletics uh, field were tolerated as you know, the way to, to confront those problems. We don't face that kind of threat anymore. And as a result, you know, I think society is uh, far less willing to tolerate those kinds of things because we don't feel that the benefit outweighs the consequence anymore. Mm-hmm. And and I was just thinking that that makes makes perfect sense in the sense that football back then was about toughening and training men to be men as opposed to now I would say especially in in big program uh, or big time college football programs it seems the emphasis is on training specialized high performing athletes and so there's you know there's this greater awareness of what is good for the athlete not necessarily uh what's going to toughen up or create uh character for for these young men well that's true and and some of that i would have to say irrespective of the cold war is also regarding the rules changes you have to realize well into the 1950s they were still playing limited substitution football there were still lots of players playing both ways um, you know, the open substitution game that we have now really doesn't fully begin to flourish until the 1960s, the latter 60s. Um, so, you know, the notion of football as a, you know, um, a complete game to be played by one individual is still, um, you know, prevalent at the time. Um, but yeah, I, w- I would absolutely say that um, football now is, is much more about uh, the refinement of specialized skills uh, than an overall sort of milieu, if you will, of, of toughness. So related, related to that, thinking about the changes and the continuities between college football 50 years ago and college football today... Uh, when you were researching and, and writing the book, and earlier you made the comment, there is nothing nothing new under the sun in, in college football. What was it that, that really struck you where you just dropped your notes and thought, wow, this was an issue 50 years ago, and it's still an issue today? Um, well, I guess I didn't, I didn't find anything. Well, yes, I did. I, I realized that there was a tremendous continuity with the search for a national champion. Mm-hmm. Um, in essence, what Tom Hamilton was trying to do in 1961 was exactly what we're arguing about with the BCS today. He was trying to have a free hand to be able to invite 
the best team in the country, preferably the best two teams in the country, and as a result, stage a national championship game. I, I, if I had to pick one thing, it was the realization that this is not something that we started arguing about in 1998 with the creation of the Bowl Alliance or the coalition, whichever came first. Um, that in one way or another, this is something that has been ongoing for at least a half a century amongst the college football uh, you know the, the patrons of the game, um, and and that was something that I I did find intriguing. Probably the 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 a cup, one or I guess the biggest uh, piece of evidence that that caused me to literally stop, and I, I remember to this day where I was and what I was doing. I was sitting in the archives, the the reading room at uh, at LSU, and I came across a signed death threat uh, to the athletic director at LSU. Uh, for willing to consider integrated games. Uh, and, and I'd always know that there was, you know, obviously significant opposition to integration in the South. And, you know, there had been a fringe minority who was always willing to approach violence. But to send a signed death threat to a state official uh, was cheek more than I was, uh, you know, thinking I was going to find. That, that, that was pretty intriguing. So with the national championship, then we shouldn't hold our breath that there's going to be any, any resolution. <laughs> Uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean, irrespective of the historical drift, uh, I wouldn't say that I, I see a playoff coming anytime soon. I, I doesn't seem to be. Um, you know, it's a fully commercialized process, yeah. and so you have to look at. Uh, you know, the managers of the game, which essentially are the university presidents with input from their athletic directors, why would they change the model right now? It's it's more popular than, than anything other than the NFL, and the NFL may go away for a year here. Yeah. Um, it's making money hand over fist. While gate is declining in every other sport, it actually was up last year in college football. So from a purely market perspective, why would you change a product that is making you money hand over fist right now? Um, and I don't expect you're going to see any movement in regards to a playoff unless one of two things happen. A, the market changes dramatically, or the government gets involved with regards to antitrust issues. But even then, um, I think the, the opponents of the BCS should be careful of what they wish for, because if, the, if Congress you know, um, initiates hearings and declares the BCS a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act, then the BCS will go away. But many university presidents have made it clear that they'll be happy to go back to the old bowl system then and still not consider a playoff. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that uh, a playoff system is imminent. So I'll finish by asking, lastly, uh, what, what project you're working on now? Are you sticking with, with college football? or uh, No, actually, I'm, I'm still looking at, at culture and sports. I'm working on a book now about uh, basketball um, and race um, and looking at the way in which sports has larger cultural meaning. Um, we tend to take it as a sort of an axiom in American culture that sports is inherently democratic, it's inherently meritocratic, it's inherently egalitarian. Um, and as a result, for example, in the South, once we you know let blacks start playing on the teams, that made it so much easier for us all to accept integration uh, because then that allowed them allowed us to see blacks as you know as equals, as participants, as contributors. Um, and I argue. In, in my coming book, uh, that sports doesn't inherently contain those values. It only contains those values when we want to locate those values there. 
Um, and in looking at college basketball, uh, there is a significant effort uh, to exclude historically black colleges, to h- exclude schools with black players. Uh, the Big Ten maintained an outright ban on black teams, I'm, I'm sorry, black players in basketball into the 1940s after World War II. Uh, they were kept out of the NCAA basketball tournament for years, and eventually it's what led to the creation of the small college, what we now call Division II tournament, mm-hmm. um, as a way to further hold uh, black schools uh, at bay. So uh, really, again, you know, with this book, it's not really so much about college basketball, uh, but it's about race and it's about the values that, that we attach to sports and really more about American society than basketball is just the prism through which we can look at it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll say I really enjoyed in reading your book, uh, and for listeners, I'll say if, if, if you're turned off by sports books that are focused upon athletes and, and you know detailed accounts of games, uh, this is not the book for you. Instead, this is really a, a, a really interesting, and as I've said, surprising book about uh, how sport fits within culture and, and does provide a, a prism of, of culture. So, so I really enjoyed it as, as a book about cultural history rather than specifically sports history. Well, thanks very much. When when my mother was reading it, she called me one time and she said, well, I'm about half done. And I said, well, what do you think? And <laughs> she pauses and she says, well, when is it going to get to the football part, dear? <laughs> huh. All right. Well, thank you again, Kurt, for joining me on New Books and Sports. Uh, once again, I'll admit my ignorance and I'll say there was a lot that I didn't know before reading this book. And it was quite fascinating for me to to look into these debates and the internal decision making behind the the selection of teams going to the Rose Bowl. Now, my one disappointment, and it is purely a personal disappointment, is that you didn't have a chapter devoted to the team that did go to the, to the Rose Bowl and win the Rose Bowl, the University of Minnesota, which is my alma mater. And, of course, that was the last time the Gophers went to the Rose Bowl. And, yeah. we've, and we've suffered 50 years of football woe since then. So I was hoping that I'd at least be able to celebrate some some past glories while reading your book, but I guess it's it's just as well that I didn't. Well, I, I actually did think about adding a chapter for Minnesota. Oh. <laughs> the, the, the only issue was that there was little in play in Minnesota that wasn't the same thing with Ohio State. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the same kinds of issues were in play. The, the arguments of the faculty about faculty control, the question of the Cold War. Um, the, the one thing that makes the Minnesota chapter so intriguing, and, and it does make it slightly different, but then again, it's very similar to UCLA, is Minnesota also has um, an integrated tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, the, the quarterback for Minnesota uh, that year was Sandy Stevens. Uh, he was the first black quarterback in the Rose Bowl, and in fact, just yesterday was elected uh, to the College Football Hall of Fame, uh, rather belatedly. He probably should have been in a long time ago. Um, but yeah, so the, the Minnesota story is, is if you're a football fan, it's very intriguing because it has all kinds of those things. Uh, but from an interpretive standpoint, I couldn't find anything that was different either from the Ohio State chapter or to a lesser extent on the question of race uh, with regards to the UCLA chapter. Yeah, And so let me ask just about your sources you you went into university archives and uh uh it was just interesting that that uh this looks like a, a pretty untapped source but a but a rich body of sources yeah university archives if you have the patience to put up with the varying 
uh, sort of organization of them um, can entail a tremendously rich source of material. Uh, the interesting thing with regards to sports is you think the obvious place to look is in the records of the athletic department. Uh, very little of those remain on most college campuses mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons, largely because for many years they weren't really considered part of the academic side of the university. So, uh, you know, athletic officials didn't think they were worth saving. Libraries sometimes weren't interested in them. I also think that there's no small amount of covering things up that, you know, might have shown up in there that they were anxious, maybe not even knowing what might be in there. Um, but the other thing is the interesting side is that because we're, we are so passionate about our college sports, uh, it was not at all um, you know, un- uncommon for people to write directly to the president of the university about stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and particularly in Alabama and LSU, uh, when you got conversations involving the governor and the legislature, um, there was a lot of correspondence um, on this stuff. Um, and, and as it turns out, um, LSU and, oh, I'm sorry, um, Ohio State and UCLA both have exceptionally good university archives. So there was a lot of athletic material there as well. Well, thank you again. We're, we're out of time. And uh, so once again, I enjoyed reading the book, and I, I recommend it for college football fans, but also for uh, people interested in, in cultural history of the United States in the mid-20th century. So, Kurt, thanks, thanks again for joining me. Thanks very much. I enjoyed being with you. You've been listening to an interview with Kurt Kemper about his book, College Football and American Culture in the Cold War Era, published by the University of Illinois Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications. If you like what you heard, please visit the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, get announcements of new interviews, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and have a pleasant week.